Let us hear the reading of God's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. The Apostle Paul continues, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we stand, let us pray. Father, we ask that this morning you would open our eyes to see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is your own image. Make your light to shine in our hearts now to give us that knowledge that saves and transforms and is the ground of our hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I do please be seated and uh, come with me to that uh, reading, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, that Ken read for us this morning, recorded uh, all the way over there in the promised land and uh, by the wonders of technology enabled us to share with you, dear brother, uh, this morning. So again, uh, warm greetings to those of you joining us on YouTube as well as those of you who are here in the building with me. There are some handouts uh, if you want to make notes. I think they were going around already, but if anybody missed one of those and would like one, do put your hand up and uh, one of the welcomers will come round. It looks like we've got everybody, so that's great. Apart from Ian over there on the sound desk who would like one. As I'm sure uh, many of you will have done uh, as well, I've attended an increasing number of secular funerals over the years. Uh, Since uh, I have also conducted Uh, many hundreds of Christian funerals in my day job as a cleric, uh, I'm sure I look at these secular ceremonies uh, through a very particular set of lenses. And what struck me forcefully uh, from the very first one I went to and has been reinforced since was the outward similarity between a secular ceremony and a Christian one. Uh, In both, uh, a congregation is gathered for a ceremony uh, led by an officiant. 
In both, typically there will be heartfelt tributes, perhaps some stirring poetry, carefully chosen music to remember the deceased or comfort the mourners. Sometimes uh, the secular funeral even includes the invitation to pray, or in one I went to uh, a Christian hymn. The body will be uh, reverently dealt with, uh, lowered into the ground or disappearing behind a curtain. And I guess it's not surprising uh, in a culture shaped by a millennia and a half uh, of the Christian pattern of facing bereavement and saying farewell to our loved ones. It's not surprising that secular funerals have kept the shape of Christian ones while entirely subverting them. Consider this apparent use of resurrection language in the secular ceremony. He will live on in the memories of us all. It's a pleasant sentiment but actually concedes that he won't live on in any personal sense at all. Listen to this contrast. A fine Christian minister I knew a little died this week. Uh, His son tweeted, Dad has died, but now he is more alive than ever before. It's a long way from he will live on in the memories of us all, isn't it? And I find it is that very similarity of shape and content between these rival ceremonies which places the spotlight on what is deliberately left out of the secular one, namely the hope that is sure and certain, personal and Christ-centered. There is pathos and sincerity, but there is no hope. How can there be, even though the shape of the gathering is unmistakably Christian in origin, what has been deliberately gutted from the gathering is the only one who can give us hope in the face of death. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord Jesus Christ. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, that minister, Melvin Tinker, certainly did believe that and preached it faithfully too. And on the basis of Jesus' promise, his son knows that his dad won't just live on in his memory. No, he's more alive than he ever was on earth because he's been taken home by Jesus. And though he has died, yet shall he live. No amount of beautiful poetry or soothing music can substitute for Jesus and the hope he holds out to us and bids to receive in and from him in the face of death. And it is that sure and certain hope which is in view in our passage in 2 Corinthians this morning. Look at verse 14 if you've got the passage open and hear Paul's confidence, a confidence we share if we share his faith in Jesus the resurrection and the life. Uh, We know, he says, that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Not we hope in that vague sense that we hope our team will win. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in that great corporate gathering in his presence around the throne for all eternity. This is the Christian hope. In the previous section uh, that we've been looking at uh, last week, Paul has reminded us of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, verse 4. And that as the message that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord is preached, and as we come to receive him and trust him, So verse 6 becomes true in every Christian soul. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, 
made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we see that our Christian hope in the face of death is not an impersonal thing. It's not a get-out-of-the-grave-free card. Our hope of life in the face of death comes because in Jesus Christ we are brought to know the author of life himself. In Christ, as we receive him as our own Lord, God shines his light into our very hearts, individually, personally, powerfully, that we might know him, the creator of the universe and the judge of the living living and the dead, that we might know him as our own saviour. As Paul has been teaching us in Christ, as we turn to him, uh, the veil of ignorance and obstinacy is taken away and the light of God himself shone into our hearts that we might live and be free and increasingly transformed into the likeness of Jesus until that work is complete on the day when we go home and see him face to face. Let me put it plainly. The Christian can say, I know God. Because he has made himself known in Jesus Christ to all who will receive him. The Christian can say, I know that God has accepted me. Not because I'm good, but because by his death, Jesus has dealt with all that kept me away from my maker and him away from us. The Christian can say, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. And it's not an arrogant or presumptuous claim, because it's just a matter of taking Jesus At his word, he who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Jesus uh, has promised that those who believe in him will live forever, and I believe that promise. Can you say these things? Can you say them with that same confidence that Paul had, that same confidence we can all share if we put our trust in the words of the Lord Jesus for ourselves? Don't rest until you can say, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Don't put it off. None of us knows whether we'll still be around to make that choice tomorrow. And we have the sure promise of Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Here is the solid foundation the treasure of the knowledge of God in Jesus and the hope we have in the face of death because of this treasure. This treasure, as it were, uh, purchases on our behalf uh, a a place with the Lord Jesus in the eternity uh, to come and gives us now the sure hope that his resurrection will one day be ours. That is the treasure. But the focus of this passage is the earthly context in which we hold on to this hope. How do we hold on uh, to hope in Jesus when life now is so often so hard, when suffering comes to us, when our own weakness uh, has, it seems, the decisive hand upon us, when other people let us down or seem uh, determined to pursue their own interests, at our expense? How do we hold on to hope when we look at the Bible and we look at the news or we look at ourselves and we can't make sense of it all? How do we hold on to hope when we're laid so low we feel we just cannot get up again? And it seems that uh, as though death is right here 
even in the midst of life, when scoffers and unbelievers often seem to have such easy lives, when we feel so isolated as Christians, the church in endless decline, uh, when trouble seems to be at every turn. Perhaps you resonate with one of those, or you have your own anguished question. How do we then hold on to our hope in Jesus? Well, Paul's answer to that question is the burden of this passage. And I want to encourage you that you should be glad that it is. After all, what use would any faith be that only survives on easy days? A faith that works fine when you're young and beautiful and healthy is wonderful and not to be despised. But its real testing comes when the icy fingers of death work their ways into our lives, as they do for all of us in this fallen world in a myriad of ways. And if you haven't suffered much yet, you're probably not very old. When it comes, where will your hope be? Will it hold? Will you lose heart or stand firm? Four words of encouragement from Paul in this passage to stand firm in Christ until the end that we may be saved. First, the power of God, verses 7 to 9. Verse 7 opens with this vivid image. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The clay jar was the plastic packaging of the ancient world. Clay jars were cheap and fragile. Only what was in them gave them any worth. In themselves, they were ephemeral and worthless. Well, Paul says that is how it is uh, for the Christian hope in relation to these bodies in which we exercise it. God has given us a priceless treasure in his son, the power to know him and to live forever. But this hope is experienced in our mortal bodies, in our frailty and weakness and sickness and suffering, and finally, in our death. And indeed, Paul says the weaker we are, the more we shall see that that power to save comes from God alone. It is precisely when we exhaust our own resources, when we come to the end of our tether, that we discover the power to live is not from us at all, and it never was. Even though we may live under that illusion for a season, it is from God who will not let us go until he has completed his saving work in us. That's why I think it's hard for wealthy Westerners like us to inherit the kingdom of God. We spend most of our lives cultivating the illusion that we're in charge. Food is plentiful, gadgets that ease our lives, healthcare readily available to us in the great blessing of this nation. We may grumble, but compared to most of the world and most of history, we have never been as wealthy or powerful over the daily circumstances of our lives. The growing pressure to legalize euthanasia comes at least in part from this desire to maintain the illusion of control over our lives. If we can't maintain the illusion, we at least want power over our exit. But even in our culture and our context, we know deep down in our hearts, every one of us, that the illusion of power over our lives is just that, an illusion. And Paul encourages us not to live in the dreamland, not to live in the illusion, but to embrace our our weakness, not to hide it from others or from ourselves or from God, but to acknowledge it. 
humbling ourselves before the Lord. So we see his uh, reviving, restoring, renewing power at work within us and take refuge in his power, even as we acknowledge our own weakness. It is a restraining power as well that conquers our anxious fears. Anxiety is another manifestation of our failed grasp on power. That we yearn for control, that control eludes us, and so we're gripped with terror of what may come to be. Paul says to us, see the restraining power of God at work in your life, in the very things that unrestrained would indeed terrify you. I think that's the point of the four comparisons in verses 8 and 9. These were Paul's experience. You could make your own list. There's no joy in being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, or struck down. Those are vivid, painful experiences. But Paul sees God's power in the restraint he exercises in limiting that suffering, in preventing it from demolishing Paul and his faith and hope once and for all. Now, I know that brings the question that in our naivety, in our tears, uh, we want to ask, which is, if God's power really is all-surpassing, why doesn't he just stop the pain altogether? But Paul sees the all-surpassing power of God in the restraint of evil, and he puts his hope in its eventual abolition when Jesus returns Again, why aren't things even worse, is Paul's question. Well, because God, in his all-surpassing power, has so ordered the life of his servant and every one of his servants, that though he is hard-pressed on every side, he's not crushed. Though perplexed, he's not in despair. Though persecuted, he is not abandoned. Though struck down, he is not destroyed. Acknowledge your weakness to him. Don't hide it. Abandon yourself to his sovereign ordering of your life. And you will see his power at work to hold on to you, to save you, to keep you going until the end shall come. Second, and leading on from this, here is the life of Jesus, verses 10 to 12. So many people say, don't they, how can you believe in the God of the Bible when he allows so much suffering in the world? It's a hard question and a good question. We shouldn't duck it when we're asked. And there are different answers we can give to that. But the key in this passage is the place where I normally want to start when that question comes, not from the hardened heart of the person who doesn't want to think about Christian faith, but rather from the broken heart of the one who knows suffering as a reality in their own lives. I want to say to them and to us, uh, how can you not believe in the God of the Bible when the place where he drew closest to us was at a man who suffered, a man who was rejected, a man of sorrows who died, or so it seemed, long before his time. This is the God we believe in, the God of the cross, the God who comes near to us, to embrace our brokenness and pain. And yet we see in that death, and not the meaningless end of another keen young preacher, but rather the very power of God for the salvation of those who trust in him. For that is the gospel. And our suffering is likewise transfigured when we entrust it to him and see in our lives the imprinted and unavoidable pattern of his 
So Paul, verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Just as weakness is the necessary precondition to seeing God's power, so our suffering as Christian people is the very basis upon which we experience, or the very context in which we experience our hope. If we weren't dying, then we wouldn't need the promise of a resurrection. Now, all things being equal, we'd rather not suffer and die at all. But Adam uh, rather took that option away from us. We're born into a world of suffering and death, and we bring it upon ourselves by our sin. It is what it is to be human. But here is the gospel. God doesn't look at that from afar, but enters into this world of suffering and death and conquers it. Sin is forgiven. Illness is healed. Death is overturned. And one day, all of that will be ours. And so for us, when, not if, but when we suffer and die, we who are in Christ are carrying around in our own bodies the suffering and death of Jesus. And where does that lead? It leads to resurrection. It leads to life. And his resurrection life, Paul says, will also be revealed in our mortal bodies. And the more we feel the cold grasp of our mortality, the more we know that one day we shall experience the joy of Easter Sunday morning ourselves. So friends, rejoice and be glad when life is good and health is rosy and all is well in the garden. But when those days are past, and they surely will pass, And the other days come. Rejoice that in your body, the death-conquering life of Jesus will sustain you and will one day be seen in its full glory. Now, Paul's particular suffering that he has in view is that which he has endured as a Christian apostle. As he details at length later in the letter, he has endured an extraordinary litany uh, of woes as he has proclaimed Christ. The uh, Corinthian church have come into being because of his suffering ministry. That's why he says in verse 12, death is at work in us who are bringing you the gospel, but life is at work in you as you believe the gospel and are saved. And while his story is unique, it is also the shape of every authentic Christian who follows the one who did not come to be served, but to serve. Uh, Do you want to see the power of God and the life of Jesus? Well then, acknowledge your weakness. Embrace Christ, whose pattern is the one that is now imprinted upon you. But over and above that suffering common to all people and the hope we have of resurrection, give yourself now in costly love to your brothers and sisters in Christ and to your neighbors and to your enemies. That will bring great reward, but it will come at great cost as well. You will be let down. Your own resources will be even further depleted. You'll probably be unthanked, almost certainly wearied, and at times discouraged. But then you will be able to say with Paul, death is at work in us, because we've given ourselves for your sakes. But you will also see the life of Jesus revealed in your body, I know the joy of his life at work, of his life at work in those you love. Third, the spirit of faith. 
Jesus also, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He also said, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What most thrills and absorbs us is what we truly treasure. What we truly treasure, we find difficult not to talk about. I still remember nearly 30 years ago in May 1992 being out in a pub in Liverpool when the city's football team had just won the FA Cup. Everybody that we met that night in that pub and as we went home across the river again back to Birkenhead was singing and dancing and hugging, not the Everton supporters, but everybody in that city that night was an honorary Liverpool supporter. They couldn't stop talking about how wonderful it was. When someone gets engaged or becomes pregnant, they tell their friends and family they want them to share in the joy. When something good happens to you, it's natural to want to talk about it. And the better the thing that has happened, uh, the greater the desire to tell it abroad, to tell even strangers in the streets. Well, if we have come to know God, if the treasure of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ is now ours, Surely we will speak of him. That's Paul's argument. That's why he says, verse 13, quoting from the prayer of a man who had himself been overcome by trouble and sorrow. Read the psalm from which he quotes. It will bless you. And he quotes just this one line. I believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. And this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. It's an upward spiral of praise reaching its crescendo in eternity. The risen Christ is preached. People believe in him. Those who believe speak in both praise and witness the gracious word which saved them so that more and more people hear and believe and speak in praise and witness. And so the good news extends. The glory goes to God and the good news is believed by many. And 2,000 years later, a Jewish rabbi and his handful of powerless followers have become a community of billions with thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God and more added every day. Will you take your place in that choir? And if the gospel treasure has lodged in your heart, well, then let the overflow of that come from your mouth in praise and in witness. This is not an invitation uh, to feel guilty because uh, we know how badly uh, we uh, speak for Christ when we have those opportunities. Most of us become tongue-tied or um, uh, we feel afterwards, if only I'd said so-and-so. This is not an invitation uh, to feel bad about those missed opportunities, but rather to fix our eyes on the one who gives us that treasure. Not uh, in an orchestrated way, but quite naturally. So as our hearts are captivated by the treasure, uh, so our mouths will open. Because we long to bring praise to he who has loved us. And we long for others to come and know him for themselves. And then fourth and finally, the weight of glory. Verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. The power of God, the life of Jesus, the spirit of faith. This is how we're sustained. 
and life is hard and we are weak. Well, Paul adds one final encouragement, the weight of glory. If faith is not silent, neither is it blind. Our eyes naturally open to what we see around us, including the troubles that sometimes seem to be all we can see. Well, Paul knows that. He's experienced it. He's lived it. But he has learned and he encourages us to learn uh, that we need to lift our eyes and to fix them elsewhere. Not onto something imaginary, uh, but onto the most substantial reality in the cosmos, uh, what he calls more literally, as we have it in the older translation, the weight of glory. That is the glory of God and our life in him in the coming eternal age. Here is what we see with our natural eyes, that our bodies are wasting away, that our lives are full of trouble, uh, that everything is so transitory. Picture this building in a hundred years' time, uh, if it's still standing. If it's still here, still at church, the Lord hasn't uh, come back and they're beginning to plan how they mark the 300th anniversary of St. John's Hartford, well, then none of us will be here. Maybe the odd newborn down in creche, but none of the rest of us will be here in a hundred years' time. We will be long forgotten. My name might be on a list of vicars, but no one will remember me. No one will be alive who knew me well. I won't be living on in anybody's memory. What a hopeless hope that is. What is seen is temporary. So Paul says, just lift your eyes away from these things and fix them instead on what is coming and what will last. Though our bodies waste away, our knowledge of Christ is already renewing us. And the day will come when we will have bodies that will never fail, never wear out, never experience weakness and suffering and illness again. Our present troubles feel to us heavy and unending, but in contrast with the eternal weight of glory to come, see them, he says, for what they truly are, light and momentary. I would hesitate to use that comparison, but this is the exhortation from the apostle who tells us later in this letter, and I quote, three times I was beaten with rods, that once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and day in the open sea, I've been constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, I've labored and toiled, gone without sleep, I've known hunger and thirst and have often been without food, I've been cold and naked, Besides everything else, I face the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? That's the character of the one who writes these words. He practices what he preaches. If you'd been through that list of experiences, would you describe your troubles as light and momentary? I wouldn't. Certainly wouldn't in myself, in my natural state. And looked at in themselves, apart from the perspective of eternity, they're anything but. They're all consuming and weighty. That's why Paul says, no, we must learn to make the right comparison, not between our lives and someone else's, or not between the troubles that we're going through and the troubles that someone else has, but between the troubles we have now and the weight of glory that is to be revealed in us, in Christ in the age to come. And in comparison with that, well, then we shall see that they are indeed light and momentary. 
And in the connection is closer than a mere comparison. Our present troubles are achieving that weighty glory. Just think of that for a moment. Not one moment of patiently endured pain that you experience is wasted. It is part, mysteriously, of that divine calculus that is preparing for you, achieving for you a weight of glory. Not one tear falls to the ground unnoticed or unproductive. The troubles are sown here, but the harvest is glory there. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Friends, we have a hope that is steadfast and certain, even in the face of suffering and death. It is a birthright to us who have come to receive that treasure of knowing God in Jesus Christ. So as we put our hope in him, will you acknowledge your weakness, abandon yourself to God's strength rather than pursuing that illusion of control? Will you embrace the death of Jesus as you are suffering in your own walk with him so that his life may be revealed in you as well? Will you allow the spirit of faith to open your mouth so that you would give glory to God? Will you lift your eyes to the weight of glory that is to come? Well, then by his grace, we shall not lose heart. We will persevere to the end and be saved and will be useful to others along the way as we go. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, you know our hearts, you know our lives, you know the weakness that we so often hide from others, you know the troubles that threaten to overwhelm us. Please would you show us your power and print the resurrection pattern of your Son upon our lives. Open our lips that we might confess you and lift our eyes that we may put our hope in all that you have promised for us in the age to be revealed. And so encourage us, we pray, that we might not lose heart, that we might be liberated to love those you've put in our path and so bring you glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.